Welcome to Season 4 of Plenary Session. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad, I'm an Associate Professor of Epidemiology and Biostatistics, and I'm a practicing hemonk doc here at UCSF. If you like this podcast, follow us on Twitter, email us at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com, and you can back us at patreon.com. And with that, let's start the show. I'm back in plenary session. I'm joined by Dr. Cody Meissner. He is the chief of pediatric infectious disease at Tufts University. He's a member of the Verback Committee, uh, the FDA Advisory Committee on Vaccines. Dr. Meissner, it's a pleasure to get to speak with you. Well, thank you very much for the invitation. I'm delighted uh, to be here today. You know, I've been following your writings uh, with uh, great interest over the course of the pandemic, and I have always appreciated you being a staunch defender of the interests of children, um, which is your specialty, um, but also, I think, uh, so very important in these times. Um, I've listened to you on a number of podcasts. I've read a number of your editorials, and I I was going to take a stab at trying to summarize some of the broad points that you want to make clear to the audience and see how you feel about that summary. Um, One point I think you want to make clear is that you... Were one, you were somebody who still worries, but you worried even early on, that the impact of prolonged school closure on children um, will be very negative on their future, their future outcomes, and that the harms of that intervention may have exceeded the benefits very likely by a couple orders of magnitude. Um, I share that belief. Um, one of the other points that you've made, I think rather eloquently, is that you are a supporter of the idea that at the current moment, children between the ages of 5 and 11 and their parents um, and their pediatricians should be able to offer a vaccine. Um, you, you support the offering of it. At the same time, you've been reluctant to support a mandate for it. You think that would be premature. And we can talk about the evidence base. Um, so I think it would be a mistake to say uh, that you were opposed to the approval. You are not. You support having it as available option. Um, you may be critical of any sort of brute force policies to mandate it to, in order to go to school, for instance. Um, and then I think the last point is, I think, you want to make it very clear that there is still considerable nuance and uncertainty around that decision. So those are the three sort of general themes I've heard you say many times. And I just want to double check. You think that's a fair characterization of your position? That's terrific. Yes. No, I, uh, I think you've, uh, you've done a great job. And I think, you know, for much of my career, I've been involved in vaccines and recognizing the absolute importance of the uh, vaccines. And of course, the current rate of vaccine preventable diseases in the United States is uh, lower than ever before uh, in our history. And that's because the uptake of these vaccines is higher than ever before. So yes, I just want to be really clear up front that the COVID-19 vaccines are extraordinary they're there for adults they're very safe we don't quite know about that for for adolescents and young children but for adults they're very effective and uh they're very safe yeah and i think that's an important message and i think w- both of us will wholeheartedly support uh certainly all efforts to get every last adult vaccinated and if you're an 80 year old person right now walking around unvaccinated you're a great risk to yourself i mean your own personal health is on the line um and uh you know the the benefit to you would be tremendous to get vaccinated let's talk about yeah yeah go ahead sorry go ahead no no no, i was just gonna um you're probably gonna echo those points but um yes uh, yep i was just gonna make the point because i completely agree with that's a critical point if there's an adult who 
makes the decision that he or she does not want to become vaccinated with any of the three authorized or licensed vaccines in the United States, that person is essentially playing Russian roulette because the Delta variant is so infectious, it's going to find anybody who's not uh, immune. And you're then saying, I'm going to take the the chance that I won't end up in the hospital with this infection. And I think that's probably not a very wise approach to this issue. Yes, I think that's one thing that I don't think there's anyone who dis- would disagree, any sensible scientist, that uh, it is a Russian roulette choice. I mean, you are, you are taking tremendous risk of death, um, especially the older you are. Um, so l- let's get these things all on the table. Um, okay, good. Um, the first thing I wanted to say to you, um, I wanted to talk a little about the kids' authorization. Um, I, I actually, you know, I watched most of the Verbeck meeting and I thought in my mind, the part of the meeting that was the most compelling to me was the presentation of modeling done by the USFDA. And they presented a variety of scenarios. And in all but one of those scenarios, the calculus in favor of vaccination, even in that younger age group, tipped positive. Um, they used a number of parameters. One parameter was what might we expect in terms of SARS-CoV-2 infections in the next 120 days? The other parameter they used is, let's assume kids 5 to 11 will have the same rate of myocarditis as kids 12 to 15. We can leverage Optum, the insurance data set for that estimate. And it was something, you know, in the ballpark of 150 to 200 per million sort of estimate for myocarditis in 12 to 15 using Optum, which is a little bit different than other estimates, but kind of close to the Israelis, I think. Um, I think the Optum estimate is probably pretty good. Um, But is that true in 5 to 11? The answer is that's an open question. They're prepubescent and maybe it'll be lower, you know, and it's a lower dose. So let's hope it's better. Um, But that's what the modeling used. Um, And the third parameter they used is if a 5 to 11 year old, um, what is the risk that they will be hospitalized if they were to acquire the virus? Um, and I think those were the, the general parameters of the model. And I guess the point I wanted to make about the modeling, which I think was persuasive in all but uh, model number three, um, is that all of the parameters did not leverage the pivotal trial data, the randomized controlled trial. All of the estimates that they use in the model are from other data sources that pre-existed or existed separately from the pivotal trial, the, the 4,700-person randomized controlled trial. That to me was unusual for a regulatory decision. Um, and I think the argument I'll present to you is that people on both sides may be dissatisfied. People who wanted this authorized sooner would say, you didn't need to wait for that pivotal trial because you had all these model parameters. You could have modeled it and had the approval five weeks ago. What took you? And people who want more data from the randomized trial will say, you don't need to run a 3,000 person, 4,000 person randomized trial. It's too small to give me any information. It's got to be 100,000 kids if you want to give me more information. So neither party should be sated, I think. So I'm curious what you think of that argument. Well, let me back up just okay. a little bit because your point is very well taken. Okay. I think, um, and, and let me just make a, a, a comment about mathematical models. You know, they're very helpful and um, they enable us to anticipate what may happen next. But remember, the history of m- mathematical models for COVID-19 have been very, very wrong in many settings. Remember when this was just beginning in uh, February, March, this pandemic was just beginning in February, March of, of 2020, the, the mathematical models w- were indicating that there were going to be millions of American deaths due to this. And we now have a little more than 750,000 deaths, but it's not 
it's they were off by an order right. of magnitude. So a mathematical model, and I think this is what you're saying, is, is only as good as the base case assumptions. And um, if the assumptions are not accurate, then the, the conclusions from these mathematical models are not uh, necessarily predictive of what's going to happen. And I think that in, in, in that model that you just mentioned at the FDA, remember, they took uh, uh, hospitalization rates from uh, the, the first and second week in September. And that was the peak of right. the fourth wave of uh, this pandemic. And right now, the, the, the rates of, of hospitalization and, and of illness are considerably lower. They did a sensitivity analysis. That is, they, 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 they made certain uh, changes to their assumptions and still got a figure that, that, that was reasonable. But they didn't go as far down as they might have looking at the amount of disease that we're seeing now, because as you know, this pandemic is really declining. There are ups and downs on a daily basis, but overall uh, the rates are going down. And I think, uh, and we'll probably talk about this, uh, seropositivity rate is, is, is pretty high. The CDC just estimated uh, last month that, uh, that 80% of blood donors in the United States are, are seropositive either from receipt of the vaccine or from infection. So I think most people will say that we're getting pretty close to a uh, threshold where the virus is going to have a more difficult time uh, circulating as long as no mutants emerge that are resistant or are not inactivated by uh, the current vaccines. And so far that has not occurred, as you know. So I think we need to be, uh, again, the mathematical models are good, but you know you have to look at how they've made their definitions. Are they just looking at myocarditis? Are they looking at myocarditis plus pericarditis? Are they looking at males and females? Because the risk of myocarditis is quite different. Um, what age groups are they looking at? It's an enormously complex process. And I certainly don't mean to criticize any of the mathematical models. I'm only pointing out how difficult it is um, to, to conduct and conclude uh, exactly what's gonna happen next. Cause uh, this virus has made us all look kind of silly again and again. Mm -hmm. No, that's well put. I mean, I share your feelings and the one thing I'll add on to your point is Imperial College London predicted over 1.5 million deaths, or over a million deaths in a very short time span, which, you know, we're 700,000 over, you know, a year and a half now. Um, so it was really off, I think, and uh, the models have been off in many respects. Um, the one thing I will add uh, to your point is um, I actually think that when it comes to sort of regulatory decisions, I don't like to use models at all. I mean, I'm a sort of an FDA purist that I like to use randomized control trials. So I'm in the category that I would have run this at a 100,000 person trial. I know Pfizer has the money and I know the appetite to enroll children is through the roof because 1 million children, 5 to 11, have already been vaccinated. So it could have been enrolled rapidly, I think. And I think that, you know, when you're talking about event rates, one in 5K, 
which is myocarditis boys, maybe 12 to 22-ish, um, not girls, of course, and not if you take boys' myocarditis and divide it by the denominator of everyone in America. Okay, that's, you know, that's a lower number, sure. Um, but if you're looking for events 1 in 5K, I mean, you need a lot of power, and, you know, the power of the study is just sort of not enough for it. Um, here's one thing I wanted to ask you, I mean, r correlators to this. I think, um, uh, what are your thoughts on the subgroup of children who already have had the virus and cleared the virus? You know, I think they have a, a fundamentally different, actually, maybe before I ask that question, let me, let me just point out one thing. You know, whenever we think about vaccinating any group of people, there are benefits to the individuals getting vaccinated and risks to the individuals getting vaccinated and potential benefits to aggregate society and other people. And when we talk about kids 5 to 11, I guess my feeling about that second part of the equation, the benefits to society or the benefits to the pandemic trajectory, is that the uncertainty bounds are massive. I mean, I think many people feel strongly that if we were just able to get these kids vaccinated, the pandemic will dissipate or it'll be a very different trajectory. But the truth is, it may dissipate without doing that it, by itself. It may have absent, a few more peaks may come, all smaller than the fourth wave, but we still may get peaks um, because there's pockets of older people who are unvaccinated and they're the ones who, if they get sick, they're going to go to the hospital. Um, so I guess I would argue that it is rather speculatory to know what this vaccination campaign will do for society. And so if that's true, it's speculatory, we should focus more on the risks and benefits to the individual. I wonder how you think about that struck, that general framework. Yeah, let me give you my perspective on that because I, I, I think you're, you're absolutely correct. For example, remember when the human papillomavirus was, was first licensed uh, and, and made available for adolescent females, it was not recommended for males. And there were many people that said, well, if we don't vaccinate males, we won't get herd immunity against HPV and they won't um, if a male's vaccinated, he won't infect the females. Well, the reason the ACIP did not recommend males is because one of the basic tenets of vaccinology is you can't vaccinate a person who isn't going to derive benefit from the vaccine. That is, you cannot vaccinate one person in order to protect another person you can't expose the vaccinated person to the risks of the vaccine because as you said, no vaccine is 100% safe without that vaccinated person deriving some benefit. And the recommendations from the ACIP changed in time as the drug companies did studies and they showed that, wow, out of the 22,000 cases of, of uh, cancer that occur, uh, about two thirds are cervical cancer, but one third are cancers in males. Mm -hmm. So we can certainly justify vaccinating males uh, because they will benefit themselves. And so you're absolutely correct. It's one of the basic con concepts of immunology. That is, a, we have to be sure there's benefit to the individual. We can't, otherwise what we're really doing is we're sacrificing our children to protect that uh, 60 stubborn. million adults or so who are so stubborn, they won't get the vaccine. And therefore, we're exposing the children to the risks. And what we're talking about right now is, is myocarditis. And um, that's not ethical. We've, 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 we've got to be sure that there's a benefit in 
children. And I think the conversation then gets complicated because if you look at the data that's currently available, the risk of hospitalization due to myocarditis in a male uh, after the second dose of a messenger RNA vaccine is several times higher than the risk of a COVID hospitalization uh, in that same cohort. So that gets to be a, an additional discussion that people need to have. That's really well said. And I think that's a really important principle of immunology and public health ethics that has been longstanding, which is that, and so that brings us, that allows us to have this discussion, I think, about the risks and benefits to the kids themselves in 5 to 11, um, which is where I prefer to have it. Also, I think the, 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 the uncertainty is a little bit less. It's still great, but it's still a little bit less, so we can manage it a little bit. I guess I would say that in this group of 5 to 11, the one subgroup that I want to ask you about and get a sense of what you think is there are many 5 to 11-year-olds who have already had SARS-CoV-2 and recovered from it. In fact, maybe even 40% of it that them don't know that they've had it and cleared it. And I guess to me, in the subgroup of kids with either seroprevalence positivity or known documented recovery um, who are healthy, not obese, no comorbidities, the risk-benefit calculus of this vaccine, I think, is uh, very uncertain and very tenuous. And I guess... Um, you know, uh, the the current public health campaign is not making any effort to identify these kids and potentially counsel them that you much you have much less to gain and and much more risk you're taking. I wonder how you feel about should they get vaccinated? Should they be counseled? Should we be screening them for seroprevalence before vaccination? Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting question, and this was part of the discussion uh, that took place at at the last uh, VertPAC uh, meeting. I think. And, and that was the reason that I voted yes in favor of the, uh, making the vaccine available for this group between five through 11 years of age, because there are certain risk factors, as, as you've already mentioned, that are pretty clear. Obesity, particularly the higher the BMI, the body mass index, the greater the risk of hospitalization and, uh, and severe disease. We know that uh, children who have sickle cell disease have an increased risk of hospital. So there are, are defined groups. We don't know them all, but there are certain groups that are, are pretty well defined. And I think those groups should have access uh, to the vaccine. I think that uh, they have an increased risk. And um, if the parents understand uh, the potential risk from the vaccine, and weigh that against the risk of a, a severe COVID infection, I, I think uh, parents should have that opportunity to go ahead and say, yes, I understand. Uh, I've had a discussion and I want to get my child vaccinated. And, and that's the way it should be, I think. But I'm very uncomfortable um, about mandates. And um, I know you, you you mentioned that already, and maybe we can talk about it. But I think I think the vaccine should be available um, if there's a person who lives in the same household as the child who's immunocompromised. A if it's an extended family or it's a parent who who's being treated for cancer, for example, that's another consideration. We we wouldn't want a young child to bring home uh, the virus to to a person who's particularly susceptible. Yeah, no, those are those are great. Those are great populations where I think I'm comfortable with uh, access and I'm comfortable with people um, 
recommending it and saying like, that's really where you need to focus your energies. <laughs> it's, it's the healthy, non-obese, non-comorbid kid who's already had COVID and recovered from it, whose parents live in the bubble of New York or San Francisco, who I struggle with because I think that one of the purposes of the regulatory state is to shield um, the public from decisions that may not be consistent with their own best interests that are made out of a place of anxiety or fear or tribalism, et cetera. So I worry about that healthy five-year-old in Los Angeles schools whose school board may very soon, and we can move to the mandate issue, may mandate it as a prerequisite to attend in-person education. Let's talk about the mandates for a second. Um, I guess I, I, and I took a stab at it. I wrote something in U.S. News and World Report about this, but it came to my attention that Los Angeles was recommending, not recommending, they were mandating um, that uh, all kids 12 and up. So even in the group of kids where it's only under the auspices of EUA, not formal approval, um, all kids 12 and up have to complete two doses um, by a certain date, um, and I believe that date was close to January, in order to attend in-person education. And I had a few concerns. One of my concerns was um, it, it, it didn't give any allowance for a 12-year-old boy who may have had SARS-CoV-2 and recovered. Um, so, you know, I, I definitely wonder about that, what the optimum vaccination strategy is for that kid. Um, also, that it didn't give any flexibility for the timing of the two doses. And we see right now from UK uh, advice for 12 to 17 to space the doses 12 weeks out to limit the risk of myocarditis on dose two. But the way the guidance, the mandate is written, you got to do it in a certain period of time or you'll be ineligible for school. And then the last thing I would say is that ineligibility for school, that's the worst penalty in my, I can imagine. I find it so draconian and cruel and not consistent with what I believe in because you've taken a child in this city, which has failed a child because this is a city that had public school closure for 18 months. It's one of those cities and it has failed this child already, I think, from a public policy standpoint. And now they're saying either you do this or we'll throw you out. And the last piece of the puzzle is there's racial differences. There's a study that came out in Mercury Times, African-Americans, 62%, whites, 87%, Asians, 92%. So it will be, I think, a structurally racist policy. So I wonder if you might talk about, so I was very much against this, this mandate in LA County. And I think it's, to some degree, it's the best of intentions gone awry. We want to keep kids safe. We want to do the right thing. Um, but people forget that there are unintended consequences to things. And the result of this will be you're throwing out mostly more black kids um, uh, per capita than white kids. Um, and uh, they're getting thrown out of school. And, uh, and some will have myocarditis as a result of the policy. And their parents will feel bullied into it. I wonder your thoughts. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let me unpack that because you've said uh, a lot of terrific things mm -hmm. and uh, that I, I very much agree with. Mm -hmm. So um, let me start with the, the Los Angeles. I think the, the, the recommendations or the requirements in Los Angeles are pretty difficult to defend uh, because um, in order to participate in athletics, in, in high school, uh, if a child is required to, or an adolescent is required to be vaccinated. Well, that worries me a little bit because if athletics is such an important part of school and for many children, it provides access into college or, or further education. And if a child gets myocarditis following a second dose of the vaccine, then she or he is going to be told by a cardiologist, no exercise for three to six months. And that's going to take the child out of her or his opportunity to excel in athletics. 
We also, incidentally, don't know what the rate of subclinical myocarditis is in young children. Um, there are certain uh, factors that are released from heart muscle um, if, if there's damage, and we know there is damage in, in a very small number, again, we're, we're talking about very rare events of myocarditis where, where as you said, it's about a hundred cases, um, per, per million and plus or minus another 50, depending on the population and the type of vaccine. It's a little bit higher after the Moderna vaccine, it seems than, than after the Pfizer vaccine. But, um, there are consequences to telling an adolescent, you can't exercise, you're going to have to sit on the bench and watch everyone else play. Um, that's not an insignificant issue. And could there be subclinical myocarditis in some of these children? We don't know. Um, the pharmaceutical companies have been asked to measure troponin levels um after the vaccines their response is well troponin is not specific for uh myocardial muscle and it can come from other places and so it's so hard to interpret and yeah that's true but um let's do what we can but at any rate um then in terms of, of another one of your points all pandemics are unfair there's no question about it epidemics pandemics it's the less advantaged families who suffer the most during any pandemic. When the schools were closed, the more affluent families were able to hire a tutor or send their children to private school and continue to educate them. Whereas uh, families with, with less means are not able to do that. They can't stay home and tutor their children because they've got to go to work. It, it's oftentimes a, a one-parent family. So I absolutely agree with you. The decision that was made in this country to close the schools, the decision was made to protect the teachers and to protect the adults. It was not made to protect children because children very seldom get sick from this disease. There are deaths. There have been about 150 deaths in children between 11, uh, between uh, five and uh, 12 years of age over the last 22 months. <laughs> Obviously, that's very disturbing for anybody. But we're talking about damage to huge numbers, to, to millions and millions of children who have de been, been deprived of uh, a year of education and education is the most important route to get out of poverty and uh, to accomplish things that are, are so important in, in life. So once again, I think we made the children bear the cost of trying to protect adults. It's, it's, it's very, it's, I, yeah, I, it's, I'm glad that you feel the same way. I've yeah, tried to get that point across unsuccessfully. 
Yeah, I think uh, you tried valiantly. We all tried valiantly, but it's a death blow. I mean, it's, I don't think people will fully appreciate for 20, 25 years exactly the magnitude of the, of the blow to these children. It will, and, and the implications will spill over. I mean, obviously, their, their, their career lifetime earnings are going to be impacted. Their graduation rates are going to be impacted. Teen pregnancy will go up, and there'll be gun violence and those sorts of things that always happen when you take away the one last tattered rope ladder of upward mobility left in this country. But the spillover effects will surprise many people. I think this, they'll include dem- democratic processes, elections, the way people respond to, propa- to, propa- to political propaganda, our ability to discern truth from fiction, relies on education. Uh, uh, and I think the spillover effects are, are so unpredictable and chaotic and detrimental. And that's not even to say that they're, they're, and also their life expectancy is going to be shorter. They're going to lose many years of life because we know poverty will do that to people. Um, and, and what we have gained by doing it is minuscule, if anything, perhaps even harmful, um, uh, because, um, you know, it, 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 I'm not even sure we actually spared them the spread of the virus. I don't know where they were doing in the, you know, I'm not sure how much we impacted the viral spread by doing it. Um, so there'll be many papers to come out there. Um, let me, and yeah, let me yeah. make one more uh, kind of concrete example. You know, um, many times when you go into the supermarket today or you go into a bank or uh, a- any kind of uh, uh, retail store, there's almost always this plexiglass that's set up between you and the workers. Mm-hmm. And in many schools, mm-hmm. uh, the school boards decided to put, put up these plexiglass mm-hmm. Shields around the desks. Mm-hmm. It well, increases transmission. Yes, yeah. that is probably the worst thing that could yeah. be done. Yeah. Because, and the way I think of it is, if someone exhales uh, cigarette smoke, yeah. takes a big puff and then exhales, you know, this plume of smoke comes out. And just think, if there were a plexiglass shield there, it would go up over the top of it and next door, and then it concentrates it. And what's important is to have ventilation. We want free flow of air, not this, these uh, barriers that, that restrict it. That's the worst thing that could probably be done. But as you said earlier, I mean, people want to do what they can to control this pandemic. We all want to get rid of this pandemic. And if something feels good, then they say, let's do it. But oftentimes they haven't thought about the consequences of what they're doing. And I think one of the other great losses from this pandemic is going to be the lack of confidence in science. People, you know, the politicians love to say they're following the science. They're not following the science. They're following the political pundits. And it's I think people are are simply going to lose a lot of confidence in public health experts. Let me talk about that for a second. So, um, yeah, I think the plexiglass is a metaphor for a lot of what you do. You, you, you do something in response to a threat. You actually make it worse. You don't see it. Um, and that's a lot of what we did, self-inflicted wounds. Here's one thing that I think is going to has already but will continue to usurp confidence in public health and in institutions, which we need to have some confidence in. And I, uh, and I won't pick the whole gamut because I think, but I'll pick a part of it, which is the American Academy of Pediatrics and the CDC have gone against the WHO masking kids two to six. 
um, we can debate six to 11. I think we could, I could have a debate with you. I take either side you want me to take for the purpose of debate for six to 11, but less than six, I cannot debate it. I mean, I just think there's just no credible evidence that that is going to help. And the, the consequences are non-trivial. And that's why the World Health Organization, that's why the European CDC, that's why UNICEF all advise against that policy. And in this country, we are so drunk on that policy. We've lost reason. I, I believe that the, in, the reason why we, and by we, I mean mostly, left of center, mostly academics, have embraced it so tightly is that we didn't like that man who was in power, Donald Trump, and he refused to do it. And so much of our um, scientific response is just the emotional reaction that whatever he doesn't do is, is must be, you know, if he didn't do it, it must be right. So let's do it and do it really hard. Um, you know, and also it's classic American thing too, which is like, you know, we're going to have a portion, we're going to have a meal, but it's just going to be bigger portions. And, you know, we're just going to do more of it. Um, but it's, to me, it's a big problem because- yep. Go, Go I mean, I, 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 okay. I mean, I've written, okay. Anyway, I'll, I'll let you talk about it. Yeah. I mean, what do you think about this two to six? Why do we have to push so hard on these kids? Why, why, what are we gaining? Let me, again, before I get, let me just cut you're, you're, you're making so many wonderful points here. And, you know, I don't know how the United States got to this point because we all have the same objective, regardless of which, political or religious or racial uh, segment one belongs to. Our goal is to get rid of this pandemic, to control the pandemic. And it's not to try and make political points. We want to stop this. There are still 70 or 80,000 cases that occur every day in the United States, almost all in adults, by the way. And we have to stop this. It's not a matter of who's right or who's wrong. We have to really think about what's the most effective way of controlling this and what interventions are likely to work and what aren't, because nobody knows <laughs> what's, what's best. And we need to have dialogue and discussion. And as you're pointing out, it's, come to this unfortunate situation where if you don't agree with someone, well, you're stupid or you're just not a very thoughtful person and, and, and insults get thrown. And that's, that's not the way to solve a problem. We've got so many brilliant people uh, in, uh, in the United States, like yourself, I will say. And, but we're not taking advantage of this resource in pulling everybody together, having a discussion, and finding out what's the right way to do it. Was Some of what Trump done, did may have been right or wrong. Some of what Biden has done may have been right or wrong. But, but let's think it through. Let's talk it through. It's not a political issue. I've discussed this uh, masking kids with people in Europe and uh and and also here and i i noticed that i mean there's huge differences of thought i mean it's it's massive uh europeans would not even entertain the idea um but, and 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 you know i i've always said that one of the great failures of the pandemic will be um particularly for the non-pharmacologic interventions the lack of randomized or cluster randomized control trials particularly schools we're going to leave this pandemic there's zero ongoing we're just not going to know and it's just going to be more entrenched and more you know uh these quasi-experimental studies and i guarantee you there's going to be a thousand studies that show it works 
works. And there's going to be probably 200 studies that shows it doesn't work because I think it's harder to publish. It doesn't work. So I think there'll be some imbalance in the, in the number of studies, but they'll all be a very low quality and we won't know the truth. Um, but when I talked about cluster randomized controlled trials in Europe, they felt there was no equipoise to even do it uh, in for two to six. And in this country, people feel there's no equipoise because we know it works. And that to me is the definition of equipoise. Um, anyway, I think it's a, uh, it is something that, um, you know, the AAP is a great collection of individuals, but sometimes organizations get things wrong, I think. And I think they got it wrong on this instance. And I do worry that because they lent their imprimatur to such a visible thing that runs counter to a lot of people's intuition that a two-year-old may not be benefiting from chewing on a cloth mask. I mean, it, may, it runs counter to a lot of intuition. I do worry that it'll result in a huge loss of trust to the organization downstream. And I worry about the implications for that when we need trust in institutions. Yes. And we, you know, I, this is like a live wire. It's almost radioactive to talk about masks. Yes. But um, we still don't know if masks make a difference. We don't know. Even in adults. If, yeah, if yeah, there's more harm from wearing a mask or more benefit from wearing a mask. And uh, people just don't want to hear that because it it doesn't satisfy their desire. People like to put on masks because they feel like they're doing something to pre prevent spread of the pandemic. But the real question is for children in particular is, what is the harm that comes from wearing a mask every day in school? I, I, I think we need to do the randomized trials that you're talking about in order to really assess that issue. I mean, there are certainly going to be harms and maybe the benefit outweighs the harm, but we don't know. And before we take such a dramatic step, um, we should be able to answer this question because as you're pointing out, you know, the CDC has published probably a dozen reports, but they're not controlled trials. And um, others have published them. And if, as long as the bottom line shows that there's a benefit from the mass, then the editors love to publish the paper. <laughs> and whereas the paper really is not very tight and, and rigorous, and they, they make a conclusion that can be questioned, but it's, it, that's the culture we're in. Yeah. I mean, as you know, um, my, one of my favorites was the CDC comparison of Maricopa and Pima counties, where schools in one place had a lot of masking, schools in the other didn't. But everything else was different. They vote for different people. They have different political affiliations. They have different rates of vaccination. Okay, so what am I comparing? And then recently I saw, you know, this was I thought was an irony, was, you know, there was the Dan Mask, uh, uh, an individual randomized control trial done out of Denmark. Um, it was famously powered for a 50% reduction in the acquisition of SARS-CoV-2 from receipt of a box of surgical mask and instruction to wear surgical mask. Um, it was a null study. It was published in Annals of Internal Medicine last summer. When it was published, many people, and I think fairly said, it was underpowered to detect a more reasonable absolute risk reduction, or relative risk reduction, a 50% relative risk reduction is just too big to expect. And I agree, um, you know, that's unrealistic. Um, it's not powered for 10%, 11%, 12%. But then yesterday, uh, the BMJ releases uh, a meta-analysis of a bunch of confounded retrospective studies that says a 53% relative risk reduction, and everyone trumpets that. And I said, you're the same person who said Dan Mask was underpowered. You can't have it both ways. Either Dan Mask is underpowered, in which case the BMJ estimate has to be spurious, or Dan Mask 
was adequately powered, if you believe the 53%, in which case it excludes that benefit. So you can't have it both ways, but that is the culture we're in. Science is on the, it's on life support too. Um, I wanted to ask you about boosters. Um, Famously, Marion Gruber and Philip Kraus have announced, and I think they should already have stepped out. They should already have left the FDA, um, resigned. Uh, these are two senior officials in uh, vaccine products um, who have worked for you know decades at the agency. Uh, these aren't the people I want to lose. I mean, these are the people I want in that seat because I trust them. I trust them to do an excellent job, and they're tremendous um, public health stewards. Um, all the news coverage I've read about their resignation suggests it was attention over boosters. Um, Boosters to me is a very tough subject because um, at this point, to my knowledge, the only randomized data we have for whether or not boosters, I mean, I guess there's two things to put it separate. One is, of course, are there some people who are really, really vulnerable who I'm very comfortable saying you need a booster, like somebody on active cancer treatment, an older person with a, with an impaired immune system? Absolutely, yes. You know, go get that booster right away. Um, but what about a 25-year-old man who got two doses of Moderna? What about a 30-year-old woman um, who got one dose of J&J um, and didn't have anything happen to her? Should she get another J&J? And here I think um, the calculus is very difficult to know. Um, it's uh, Even a little myocarditis can offset any benefit because the man has, you know, 25-year-old man already had two, my, two, you know, his risk of death was low. He got two doses of Moderna, 100, 100, 100 and 100, and now you're asking me a 50 more? He's taking on risk. I mean, it's not zero. Myocarditis will not be zero. What could he possibly gain? I think his risk is as low as it goes. Um, so, and yet we see, and I think it'll happen this week, the FDA will make the authorization to approve any booster for anybody. Um, they're not having a Verbac this time, which I think is problematic. Um, but I guess uh, coming back to the point, um, the Pfizer randomized control trial, uh, it, it has press release, but I haven't read the paper. Um, and the press release says there's a reduction in symptomatic SARS-CoV-2. But if I must be honest, that's not what I care about anymore. I mean, I do think that, yes, the PCR positive swabs when you have a tickle in your throat, that might be reduced. But what I really care about in boosters uh, whether it's the third booster or the fourth booster, the fifth booster, is do you reduce hospitalizations, bad outcomes, severe COVID versus not getting the booster? Um, and, and, and that's what I care about. And is that bigger than the, the potential harms of, of whatever you might get, myocarditis or, or other harms we may not be privy to? Um, so I guess I wonder how you feel about boosters. You know, I know you've been on these panels. I think um, it's, it's tricky. I'm curious your thoughts on this space and how you think about these people. Yes, yes, um, very interesting. I think it, the problem is we haven't defined what we want from the vaccine program. I mean, most people would say that the immunization recommendations are based on preventing hospitalization, preventing admission to the intensive care unit, preventing the requirement for intubation. And if that's what we're trying to prevent, these vaccines are remarkable. They are so effective. In fact, this week in, in the New England Journal, there are two papers, one regarding Pfizer's uh, mRNA and one uh, regarding Moderna's mRNA. And they, they show that five or six months out, these vaccines continue to be extraordinarily successful. So um, in terms of Avoiding sickness, uh, I think we're, we're accomplishing what we established. We don't give a vaccine to prevent an upper respiratory tract infection. We don't do that with any, that's not any 
expectation. So, and what's probably happening? I think we can explain it, even though we don't fully understand the immune response. But I think what's happening is that as the months go by, uh, antibodies in the blood, circulating antibodies, IgG, IgG um, uh, uh, continue to wane. And, um, but there's still very good cellular memory. Mm -hmm. B cells and T cells, mm -hmm. both memory cells are around. So if someone does come in contact uh, with an infectious person, that person may develop a uh, infection that may or may not be symptomatic, but she or he doesn't get sick because the T cell immunity and the B cell memory uh, comes into uh, ac action and prevents severe disease from occurring. Now, so the question then becomes, will a booster dose prevent those asymptomatic or mild upper respiratory tract infections? And, you know, I, I, I don't think I, I, I don't, it may for a short while, but yeah, that sure is going to go. So are we going to get into a cycle here of every six months or every eight months giving a booster dose? That's not practical. People won't do it. And we don't know what the complications from that would be. So as you said, yes, there are certainly people in high risk categories that are pretty well defined now. And we want to do as much as we can to protect someone who's in a high-risk group. But if you're an otherwise healthy individual, um, <laughs> the likelihood of acquiring severe disease after two doses of either the messenger RNA vaccines, or maybe it's a little less protective after the Johnson or Johnson and Johnson uh, vaccine, but you're still pretty well protected against severe illness. No vaccine is going to provide 100% infection. I mean, it just doesn't, I mean, even measles, two doses of the measles vaccine um, gives us protection of 67, 68, 69%. So there'll always be breakthrough infections. And I don't think giving boosters is going to do much to end this pandemic. What's going to end this pandemic is vaccinating all those adults who are simply too stubborn to go out or, or are they, they have a misunderstanding of the safety of, of these vaccines uh, or whatever. There are many reasons why people decide not to get uh, immunized, but that's where we need to focus our attention. There is no reason to focus so hard on children and uh, booster doses uh, um, for adults. I, I mean, so I, that's my personal opinion. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think um, uh, when inevitably there's that 25-year-old woman who got the second dose J&J &J and gets VIT, when inevitably there's the 25-year-old man who's already done two Moderna and gets the third Moderna and gets myocarditis, I'm going to really be a little angry. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to be angry because... I think we didn't do a good job for those people. We could have had a little, you know, we could have done better for those people. They didn't have to take those risks. But, but and I think that, but you see, you bring up a, a really important point. 
we had no idea that this vaccine-induced th- uh, thrombosis and thrombocytopenia uh, syndrome would happen. We had no idea that myocarditis would happen. What's going to happen in children? We don't no, no know. Yeah. And if something does emerge that's equally bad, um, that's going to be have a terrible impact on the whole immunization program. So... Uh, that's why I think a mandate is wrong. I think we need to wait and see because in six months, eight months, we'll have a lot more data. And at that point, we can assess the safety of this of these vaccines in in uh, six through 12 year olds. And we can make a decision. We all want to vaccinate, but we don't want to cause more disease from the vaccine than we're preventing from the virus. That's really well put. I mean, I, I think that, um, unfortunately, and I wish this weren't the case, but um, the, the vaccine dialogue has been a pressure cooker for some time now. And the pressure has been building over the last 15 years through a lot of perverse and, and bad entities in this space, poisoning public confidence in vaccines. But the result is, you know, it's a pressure cooker. And if there is any untoward safety signal that we don't see or any error that's made, I mean, it'll be a nuclear bomb in the field, and I worry about what the future will be. I mean, we need people to get childhood immunization. That's a huge public good. And if we poison that well, uh, we will all pay the price. Um, I actually worry that it's a double-edged sword. If things go swimmingly in this five to 11-year-old, perfect, no safety effects, everything's wonderful, pandemic goes better. Um, uh, I also worry that it it will allow regulators more appetite for risk in children in the future, and there'll be the next vaccine, the next for something else, or some other product in children. And and we won't have, um, you know, we always in regulatory science, you only get um, caution when you've been burned. You know, it takes a thalidomide. It takes a regulatory problem for you to get some armor to say, let's go slow, let's get evidence. If things go swimmingly, I think there might be an appetite for more risk. We've already seen that for the last 15 years of the agency. If things go poorly, I think I worry about that as well. So I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm worried a lot these days. Um, I do think that there's one structural problem with the boosters uh, and the five to 11 year old, and that's the, the role of politics. And I guess I would say that if you're in the White House, um, you represent a party that, uh, that I think many of your constituents will want access to 5 to 11. And I think that's got to weigh heavily on you that you're probably getting emails all the time saying, we voted for you. Where's my kid's 5 to 11-year-old vaccine? And now even now it'll be down to six months to four. You know, to four. They're going to be pressure on the White House to get me that. You know, that's why I put you there. You're the vaccine party. Get me my vaccine for my kid. Um, the next thing I think is that businesses and even the economy and the public, um, we see the scoreboard go up every time uh, there's a, a 27-year-old who's been vaccinated, who has a cold, and he goes to the local CVS, and they swab him. It's a case, and it'll be counted on the case tally, and that will create sort of a, an environment of reluctance to participate in the economy or may close cruise ships or may close businesses or may stop sporting events. You know, that's a threat. And so the, politic, the politician's point of view is wanting those sorts of events to go smoothly, Myocarditis, unfortunately, that's not going to close the economy. A bunch of myocarditis cases, the politicians said, you know, that's tough. I mean, it doesn't help hurt the politician. I mean, it hurts people, but the politician doesn't pay the price. It's not part of the pandemic narrative. Um, So I think I don't want the politician making the choice. You know, I don't want the politician telling the FDA, you know, the deadline for boosters is September 27th and you better get it done until Mary Gruber and Phil Cross resign. Okay, we'll give you to October, but get it done, um, Peter Marks. Um, So that to me is a problem, I think, that we need 
I don't know, I hope we reflect on after this and think of some real firewalls. I think the White House and the FDA should be 100% firewalled, even to the point where I think maybe the commissioner should no longer be a political appointee. It should be someone inside the agency because I'm worried about, you know, even those of us who like this administration, which I put myself in, I do, um, I worry about the next administration. I worry about a future person and a future problem. Um, but maybe that's just me. Maybe this is something you don't want to comment on because it's a little. Yeah, yeah, no. There's so many comments and thoughts I have here. Um, First, I'd just like to make a comment about Marin Gruber and and Phil Krause. I knew them. They're absolutely wonderful people. They gave a lifetime of service and they're remarkable people. They were underpaid. They were overworked. They did it because they were committed. Um, But you know what? the FDA or CBER, at least, which is the group that I know so well, are the same. Those people are remarkable. You know, Peter Marks really cares about doing the right thing. And he listens intently uh, to all positions and he thinks about it very carefully. I don't think there's anyone better that I would want in that position. I may not agree with every decision, but he is a very bright, thoughtful uh, person who really wants to do the right thing. So uh, I just I don't I want people to, to understand just how difficult it is, because you can imagine Sieber, which is the um, or, or uh, uh, Verpac, uh, no, Sieber is receiving so much pressure from from federal officials, from the pharmaceutical uh, industry. You know, I, I have, we're in a very difficult spot. You know, Pfizer and Moderna are really uh, driving this wagon, mm-hmm. and they have an enormous conflict of interest. Mm-hmm. Pfizer has already stated in there that they plan to have more than thirty billion billion dollars worth of sales this year um, from the COVID-19 vaccine. That is a huge amount. We owe a debt of gratitude to Pfizer and Moderna because if they hadn't made the vaccines, we wouldn't have them. We wouldn't have brought this pandemic under control as quickly as we have. But you also have to remember they have a different objective than um than Sieber. And um, while it's because they make so many presentations, it's hard to separate that. But um, it is important for your listeners to understand that recommendations coming from the pharmaceutical companies about boosters um, is not necessarily based on your best interest. It's based on their financial bottom line. And that's not, I don't have a problem with that as long as everybody understands it. The the people who are important are uh, the public, as you're pointing out, the public health um, community, which which, uh, hopefully is making the the right decisions. Yeah, um, that's well put. Um, And I I appreciate you saying all those things. And um, 
I guess uh, the last thing I'll say, I know our time is going to run out soon. Um, the last thing I would say is I'm just going to give you a few things that I think, and you can comment about which ones you want. I mean, uh, I like Peter too. The only thing I wish he had allowed was a reframing of the EUA, EUA question in 5 to 11 to really focus on those vulnerable populations first as an initial EUA and then come to healthy kids second. I might have done it that way. The next thing I might have done if I was at the if I was in charge of the agency is the moment I heard of VIT and with obviously we never had AstraZeneca in this country and we had VIT with J&J, I would have blocked VIT for pretty much all women under the age of 60. I think there was a presence of alternatives and so I would have actually removed that as a regulatory choice and I wouldn't have allowed J&J as a booster for J&J. I think that's just too risky. VIT is catastrophic. I think I saw memes where people compared VIT to a clot in the leg. It's not a clot in the leg. It's runaway platelet aggregation that cannot be halted through traditional mechanisms. It's a disaster. It's a, uh, almost a death sentence for many people. So that's one thing I would have done a little bit differently. Boosters, I mean, these companies have a lot of money. And I think that I do thank them for getting the initial EUA. I have no qualms about that. That was a wise decision. If anything, it should have been done faster. I know at one point the FDA changed the stopping rule, I think, from 32 events to 96 events. It could have been 32 events. You know, mathematically, that's the same if you have an extremely skewed ratio. Um, so I might have even done it sooner, the initial EUA. Uh, that was a tough time. That was literally the election time. So I understand that, you know, I give them some grace there. But the initial EUA, no problems um, with that. But my problems are once you get that EUA, I need really large randomized control trials for all these questions. I mean, boosters could have been 150,000 person per arm RCT. Kids could have been 100,000 per arm. Even the younger kids be 100,000 per arm. We don't need geometric mean titers. That doesn't mean anything to anybody. We need trials powered for harm. And the harms are, what is the, what is the, the scale of hospitalizations and deaths if you don't do it versus if you do do it for the third shot versus three versus four, four versus five, five versus six. And I will keep making them do that um, to get their market share. They have tons of money. They can afford it. And I suspect that they may not win all those studies. I mean, there's going to be some diminution to the value of perpetual boosting um, with an mRNA construct that is increasingly out of date. That's another, you know, another fact, increasingly for an old virus, you know, at least get a new, get a fresh sequence in that thing. Um, those are some of the things I would have done differently. Um, but um, And then, of course, I wouldn't have closed school. I would have opened them in the fall. I would have closed them, but I would open them in the fall, and I wouldn't have masked kids, unfortunately. I would have done a cluster RCT, and I suspect it would be null, and so then I wouldn't be masking kids. Those are just my thoughts. <laughs> what do I know? But I'm curious if you want to tackle any of them. Um, yeah, no, I'd, we could talk for a long time on each one of these. Yeah. I, um, I think that... Um, in terms of larger numbers uh, for booster, I think it, the numbers w would have to be huge, huge to show any efficacy. And I don't think I don't think you could show efficacy. <laughs> Not on hard endpoints. Yeah. Yeah, because boosters don't do anything that's clinically very relevant. Yeah. Um, but in terms of what you said, safety, I think, yes, yeah. we really need to know more about safety. We will get that. Remember, um, VAERS and VSAFE and uh, uh, the Vaccine Safety Data Link. I mean, no, those, these are wonderful programs we have in the United States for evaluating safety. So um, uh, we will have answers to these questions in time. Now, in terms of your comment about the emergency use authorization question um and could we have modified the question yes that um we did talk about that as you may remember mm -hmm. and 
But remember, the FDA has to present the question based on the data that um, the company issues and provides. So there are limits on how they can frame the question. Mm -hmm. I agree with you that... um, But you bent it for for boosters, but you didn't bend it for uh, 5 to 11. Well, I can't speak for the FDA. It depends on how... you know, what options were given. It was either, it was binary, either yes, yes or no. no. That's what they gave you, yes. Yes, and, um, and, and, uh, and so I think um, we, <laughs> I, I, I wish that it had been made available, but remember the, our role, Verpac's role in FDA is just to say, yes, the vaccine should be available or no, it shouldn't be available. We cannot define who gets it. Yes, that's HIP. Some, yeah. some people had hoped that that the CDC, it's their responsibility to decide, determine who's at greatest risk and who should get it. And it really wasn't our responsibility to say, yep, if you have these risk factors, you should get it. And if you don't have it, you don't need it. So that you had to talk to somebody from ACIP sure. in order to get, to get that, that issue uh, addressed. Cause I, I, I will just uh, hedge on that one. Okay. Fair. <laughs> yeah. So uh, are we out of time or no, no, no. I got- have a few more minutes. Uh, one thing I wanted to say about, but you have more thoughts, finish your thoughts. And then I'll say one more thing. Um, well, in, in terms of um, yeah. the vaccine induced uh, thrombocytopenia and yes. thrombosis, you know, Many people agree with you. And since we have a safe alternative, um, why not have said that women under 50 or women under 60 should get a messenger RNA? Because it will take that uh, that issue off the table because the the thrombosis concerns are not seen with um, the messenger RNA vaccines, just as myocarditis is not seen with uh, the adenovirus vectored vaccines from um, from J and J and AstraZeneca. So, um, I think the record. Remember that, that vaccine did have advantages in the sense that one and done. It, well, it require, was one and done, <laughs> and refrigeration. Yeah, was, yeah, but it didn't require ultra refrigeration. Yes, ultra you know, and a lot of facilities don't have that. And for people who only we're going to be in a certain area could only get one shot um you know that 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 one shot was um was certainly better than none so i mean the i think there were reasons to have that although i agree with you that if i was a woman in that age group i i would probably think pretty hard about getting the the the, the Janssen vaccine e- even today but yeah, and i think they should be always... boosting with mrna for sure if they've already gotten it and then now they should get mrna if they haven't yeah yep the last thing i, I thought i had for you about safety signals was i mean um you know we do have a good system in the u.s but it could be better and here's why i say it could be better um i learned about myocarditis from reading the jerusalem times in february of 20 of this year I didn't learn about it from our surveillance system. It was the EMA that launched an inquiry, I think, May 7th. And then, you know, we finally started talking about it in the summer. Um, I learned about VIT from Europe. I learned about VIT. Obviously, they had AstraZeneca given to 100 million more people than we had with J&J. 
Um, and, and then I think that obviously J and J and AZ have similar pathophysiology or, or putative pathophysiology for that mechanism. So that would be logical. Um, so, I mean, I, although I think our systems are good, the challenges I think, at least with theirs is it's passive surveillance. So people don't know what to report. They don't know what to report. Um, I think there's lots of barriers in practice to reporting in a passive surveillance system. I think that, um, you know, when you see a VIT, you know something's new because you don't see VITs every day. But when you see myocarditis, it's tough because myocarditis you do see from time to time. Um, but when you see a lot of it, um, and then I think you can start to get a sense. And so, you know, safety signals I think are tough. And I do hope that after all this, we think about maybe even more active collection of safety information for products that are debuted on it, we could set a threshold for half a million people in the first month, you know, some thre some reasonable threshold for products where we really need to make a concerted effort to look for safety signals because they are often unpredictable, idiosyncratic, um, and can be missed, I think, in the day-to-day -day shuffle of clinical practice, especially if the safety signal is something that is itself uh, a commonly occurring entity, like myocarditis. Yes. If it's in the background. In the background. Yep. yep. Um, so I would say a couple of things. First of all, we do have V-Safe. Yes. Okay, and, that's better. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, I suppose it's it's kind of in between active and passive, but but everyone who got the vaccine was requested to sign up for V-Safe and um, was contacted periodically, as I was, and I'm sure you were. So, uh, you know, that's reasonable. Now, in terms of picking up a signal with myocarditis of myocarditis w w w with um theirs theirs is passive meaning that uh anybody can report it it can be the vaccinated person the the parents the family uh the the physician who gave the vaccine a nurse uh the, the pharmaceutical manufacturer is required to report it any adverse reactions um to to theirs so um, it, it, and it, it, you're right. I mean, we had early cases of VAERS at my hospital and I would say, well, you reported it, right? And no one reported it. Correct. So exactly. I think that, mm -hmm. that, uh, and we're pretty sensitized to this issue because I'm always talking about vaccines. And, uh, and so um, I think you're absolutely right. The, the, the numbers reported from VAERS are, probably uh, on the on the low side but they did do chart reviews the fda has and the cdc have done a very um they've made a strong effort to try and confirm the rates and i think that's why you heard about higher rates from israel because they have a much better system exactly. for mm -hmm. assessing mm -hmm. um uh, adverse reactions but remember the way VAERS is constructed a person should report anything that happens after you receive a vaccine. You're not supposed to try and decide whether it was caused by the vaccine. We're just looking for a signal. So if a person gets bitten by the, your neighbor's dog, for example, the afternoon after you got a vaccine, you're supposed to report that because it's almost certainly got nothing to do correct, with the vaccine. Correct. But it's up to but, someone else to decide when they look at aggregate data. Yeah, you need to have a huge database mm -hmm. to be able to address that issue. So um, it, it, that's why it's important for people to understand. And, you know, every vaccine information sheet that's handed out to a vaccinee does list uh, how to report to VAERS. Uh, it's a phone number and uh, a email address. So people make it as easy 
as possible. Could it be better? Absolutely. The, everything we do could be better, yeah. but it's still, um, uh, it, it's pretty good. That's well put. Okay. Um, I really appreciate your time and I want to thank you for it. And, uh, I want to just tell you, uh, that, uh, uh, you know, I look up to you throughout this whole pandemic. I'll tell you why. Um, you, you know, you know what you stand for and you've always been willing to stand for it, even on issues that are hot and tough where we'll get lashed in the public square for holding that point of view. But the point of view you've hold, you hold, I think is fundamentally scientific. Um, I only can see the influence of scientific thinking in your writing and in your argument. And I think it was a tough time for a true scientist such as yourself, because the, environment was different than at any other time in history in the sense that um, you had large social media platforms where people can create groups of people with very like-minded sensibilities. And so one group may be very pro-lockdown, pro-masking, pro-masking kids, pro-more vaccines, give early, give pos, you know, no delay, you know, that, that kind of, uh, that tribe can form. And that tribe has a lot of cultural power. They can be reinforced by journalists. Um, they can preach to the choir and they can generate a lot of power. And I think they can exert, I think, um, uh, one of the cruelest human punishments, which is, you know, uh, public shaming and public attacks and those sorts of things. And pandemics, I think throughout history, you know, pandemic and war are always intertwined. Pandemic and conflict are always intertwined. And this is another form of that pandemic and, you know, taking your blows on social media, being attacked by people for holding your points of view. But I will say, and I think when the history books are written, people will go back and listen to what you said. So I hope this serves as some historic record. And they'll go back and look at what you wrote. And they will see that I think you always did what you think is right, what you think is scientific, and tried to tune all that out. And so for that, you are a hero to me and to many others. And I think in time, more people will appreciate that. So thank you, Dr. Meissner. Well, it's very kind of you to say that. And uh, it really means a lot to me. So uh, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Plenary Session is not medical advice. The views and opinions expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it. Until next time. <laughs>